Well, here we are again. How you doing? I'm doing okay, I guess. COVID news and numbers feel overwhelming these days, but I'm also fairly confident that I have no idea which COVID news and numbers actually matter, let alone what the right course of action is for sending kids to school, activities and gatherings, leaving the house in general. It is weird to be back preaching to a camera. It's also familiar and not entirely, entirely uncomfortable. And it's only for a few weeks, right? And this will all be over soon. We'll be back here in person. Yeah, we've heard that one before. So yeah, here we go again. That's actually the feeling I get with my sermon today as well. It's quadrados time again. Gospel of Luke this time. One more gospel to look at. One more path on the four, journey, four gospel journey of growth and transformation. Anyone else feeling a little bit of, come on now, we know this already. Jesus comes, he calls his disciples, he teaches them some things that they don't really want to hear, try not to understand. The tension escalates, there's a crucifixion, and then a resurrection. It's good news, but it's old news at this point, right? Luke has always felt like the unnecessary gospel to me. It's the reboot that nobody really asked for. I mean, aren't three Gospels enough? We like stories that come in three, actually. There's a reason that there are so many trilogies out there. Somewhere in your education, some well-meaning English teacher has told you about the three-act structure of storytelling. In the first act, the hero sets off on some sort of quest. In act two, the thrill of adventure quickly wears off and the dangers get real. Then comes the climax, the hero saves the day, wins the prize, and returns home. Or not, in some cases. Anti-heroes and creative subversions of these expectations abound. But three is the usual pattern. Beginning, middle, end. We actually see that fairly directly in the Quadratos gospel journey that we've gone through so far as well. The Gospel of Matthew is an act one story. Jesus calls to the disciples, and to the audience reading Matthew's gospel for the first time, will you follow me up the mountain to a brand new way of being? Then Mark is act two. It's all conflict and storms. In the gospel, it's literal storms. To the audience reading Mark's gospel, it was equally real storms of arrest and torture and murder at the hands of the empire of Rome. And John, John's gospel, is act three. We have resolution and climax, the joy of the homecoming to the Garden of Eden, finally recognizing that the Christ is with us everywhere and all the time. We've never left the garden. It's here with us. That's what I preached at Christmas, remember? Emmanuel, God's great desire is to be with us, no matter what. God is here. This is the gift of Christmas. That's the happy ending that we're all looking for. There are mountains to climb, there are storms to go through, there's even death to face. But there is also companionship, sustenance, and resurrection. Not even death can diminish the presence of God. That's where we land with the Gospel of John. Everything belongs, it's all in the garden. And the screen fades to black. 
written and directed by Jesus H. Christ, a Spirit Media production. Remember going to the theater to watch movies? At the end, the lights slowly come up, the crowd starts to shuffle out. Okay, now what do we do? Should we stay here, watch the credits, see if maybe there's a bonus scene coming at the end? I don't know, let's go grab some food, maybe talk about the movie that we just watched. Ugh, why is this floor so sticky? After the end, what do we do now? What happens next after the show is over? That's the Gospel of Luke. Where do we go from here? Let's be clear, life was not all leather seats and butter-drenched popcorn for the audience that Luke's Gospel is written to. Luke is writing 10 to 15 years after the Gospel of Matthew was written. The followers of Jesus are not a very Jewish group anymore by this point. A lot of them used to be Jewish, most of them used to be Jewish, but as the movement spread and grew across the Roman Empire, they embraced Gentiles as well as Jews. Greeks, Romans, slaves, merchants, people moving around, families from all corners of the known world. That inclusive stance within Christianity brought in many different perspectives on faith and life, and that made them increasingly different from their conventional Jewish relatives. At the same time, Judaism was also undergoing a remarkable transformation. When the temple and the system of priests and rituals that surrounded it were destroyed, a group of scholars with a strict emphasis on law and identity stepped into the leadership void. Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the notorious villains in a lot of the gospel stories, but from a different perspective, they actually saved Judaism. They rescued it, pulled it out of the chaos of political rebellion and the destruction of the temple. The Pharisees organized and preserved Jewish faith, but for better or worse, they did this in some ways just by tightening the circle, by drawing clear lines around who is a Jew, what is Jewish behavior in the new world. And those lines explicitly cut off those who followed the way of Jesus. If you believed the Messiah had come already, you were no longer Jewish. You couldn't be. That was the Pharisees' view. So Luke is writing to those who had followed the call of Matthew, those who had chosen Jesus the Messiah over their Jewishness. So now that we're no longer Jewish, what are we? Who are we? The other thing that had happened in those 15-ish years since the Gospel of Matthew had been written was the intensifying of persecution from the Roman Empire. We talked about that a lot in our study of the Gospel of Mark. The Christ followers in Rome were scapegoated for the burning of the city. Nero did his best to wipe them out entirely. Many of the leaders of the early church had been martyred or exiled. Peter, Paul, John of the Revelation, they are gone, cut off, killed. The violence was less intense in most other places, but across the empire, that threat was real. As Jews, as Greeks, as Romans, wherever they came from, for the Christ followers, their allegiances were uncertain. Whatever political power they might have had, and many of them never had any to begin with, but what they did have, that was gone. So will we survive outside of the empire, outside of our ethnic group? As individuals, as a community of faith, are we gonna last? And if we do survive, again, well then who are we now? That religious and political uncertainty was also reflected in the social reality of the followers, followers of Jesus. As they grew, they had embraced people across the spectrum of social classes, 
merchants and patrons mixed with beggars and slaves. There was no small amount of tension internally. I mean, how do we meet our financial needs? Who gets to set the agenda? What is justice? Lots of stress in that kind of diverse community. And externally, that kind of disruption to social norms and boundaries was one more thing to set the Christians apart. Their neighbors looked on them with suspicion and fear. What is this thing? They don't look like us. They don't socialize like us. They order themselves differently. This looks like some kind of cult. So many changes. Some of this, the Christ followers have chosen. Some of it was a risk that they knew this might be the consequence of following the way of Jesus. Much of it was unintended consequences. This was just stuff that happened to them. It was far beyond their control. Alexander Shia. It was amidst this upheaval that the Gospel of Luke was born. How were the nascent followers of the way to move forward in the face of being cursed by some Pharisees, abandoned by most of their Jewish friends, and oppressed by the Roman Empire? How could they deal with the hurt and resentment that threatened to poison their lives and divide their families? Should they verbally dispute and defend themselves against each hurt? Should they take up arms and fight? Should they hold to traditional practices? Did the Christ ask them to develop new and original ways? And if yes, what precisely were those new ways in actual practice in their lives? Good questions. I imagine some of those resonate with us too. For our challenges are different, but we also live in changing times. And even though we know and we trust, at least on some days, in the gospel of the first three acts, we still have to figure out what do we do with this? How do we live it? The world is changing around us and we are changing within it. Where do we go from here? From that perspective, maybe we do need one more gospel, one more time through the familiar story, not starting over, not rebooting and repeating, but taking what we've learned so far along the way, carrying it forward on the path. The first two chapters of Luke are familiar. It's the Christmas story, we've been there. First, the story of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. Unconventional protagonists, all of them. Zechariah was a priest, but when he heard directly from God, at that moment, his voice was taken away, literally. What good is a priest who can no longer speak? Elizabeth was a woman, an infertile woman, in first century Judaism, that was the ultimate disgrace for a woman, useless as an empty vessel. And then we meet Mary, another woman, not infertile, but of, shall we say, questionable morality, pregnant out of wedlock, not even through the man to whom she was engaged. Wonder how that happens. Then comes the familiar nativity story, Joseph, another unlikely character, weak, forced to leave his town to comply with the emperor's consensus. From the podunk nowhere town of Nazareth, from the tribe of Benjamin, the weakest in Israel. And Joseph was the husband to a seemingly unfaithful wife. He's not exactly the masculine ideal. To this cast of unlikely characters, Luke adds one more group of outsiders, shepherds. Alexander Shia says that in the first century, shepherds were brigands, thieves, maybe rapists, maybe pedophiles, 
They were the least of society. They were removed from society. They were sent out to work in the fields so that they would smell like sheep. And smelling like sheep was better than having a bell around your neck. Because if they came into the village, the smell preceded them. You knew who you were dealing with, and you avoided them. Those are the leading characters of Luke's story at the start. Social rejects? Check. Political losers? Check. Religious disappointments? Check. Hey there, Luke is saying to his first century audience, I see you. This is your story. You want to know who you are and where to go from here? Keep reading. I got you. Because, of course, this Christmas story flips the script on all of those outsiders and turns them from zeros into heroes. To the useless priest with no voice and to his infertile wife, God is with you. In fact, have an offspring, one that is so full of God's voice that nobody's going to shut him up. He's not the same. Give him a new name because he's going to upset the tradition. He's a break from the familiar pattern. But John, your son, is absolutely bursting with God's presence. To Mary, the shameful teen pregnancy, God is with you. You are not shameful. In fact, you will be all-time famous for your virtue. Because of who you are, you can see and sing that God brings down the powerful and God lifts up the lowly. To Joseph, the pushover, God is with you. You may be weak. You are out of control. But that weakness is actually an opportunity. That is a space in which the very offspring of God is born. And to the shepherds, deviants, and scoundrels, God is with you. When everybody else sends you away, God meets you where you are with heavenly choirs, good news, and God gives you a meaningful role in the story. Who are we? Luke asks. We are the people of God. That's who. The people who God is with. The changes and challenges don't cancel that out. In fact, these are opportunities, even assets to the receiving of the gift of God. Being cut off from conventional religion, politics, social status, actually opens you up to hear from God in new and wonderful ways. And that, rather than diminishing you, that lifts you up, that gives you work to do. What a way to start the story. One of my favorite things about the way Alexander Shia puts together the gospel stories is how each gospel flows into the next. These aren't separate stories, but one continuous flowing narrative where each piece is in conversation with what has come before. The final scene of John's gospel, which comes right before Luke, is this conversation we read earlier between Jesus and Peter. Many sermons have been preached on this one. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds all three times, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus says, feed my sheep, or something to that effect. This is a strange metaphor. Peter is a fisherman, and in this scene, Jesus and Peter are actually sitting on the beach. His boat is right there. They're eating fish that Peter had just caught. This sheep metaphor is obviously an intentional departure. This is a meaningful choice. 
In the context of John's gospel, this is a clear callback to one of Jesus' famous I am statements. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now you, Peter, you feed my sheep. As Jesus lived and died in service to his people, now he is calling Peter to take on that role. When you read John on its own, this is this story is a bit of a, it seems like an epilogue, not an afterthought, but like kind of the end of the story where Jesus just passes the baton of leadership specifically on to Peter. You are the good shepherd now. But when you keep on reading into the Gospel of Luke, well, who should soon make an appearance? Not a group of fishers in a boat, but a whole field full of shepherds. Maybe that's a coincidence. I think it's a callback. Because when the shepherds show up, they are exactly who the audience of Luke is meant to relate to. The outcast, the weak, the unconventional. You're all shepherds now. And God has spoken to you. God is with you. Now, in the words of Alexander Shia, go and take the smell of resurrection to them. Feed my sheep. You all have a task to do. You have heard, now go and serve. Go and be shepherds, like Jesus, to the world that needs to be fed. That's the call. This is only the beginning. There are lots more questions to come. Well, how do we serve? Who do we serve? What does service look like? What's the end game here? We will get to those in the coming weeks. For today, hear this message from Luke. You have come so far already. The gospel isn't news to you anymore. It has changed you. It can, has continued to challenge you. Yes, that is unsettling for sure. If it's not unsettling to us, maybe we haven't got the message right. But even as it is upsetting us, God is with us. And that means we have a purpose and a calling. The journey is not over yet. Feed my sheep. Here we go again. We have work to do. May the God who has met us and carried us on the way thus far continue to bring us hope and strength and new life. Amen.